from lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Still Growing. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. I have another great show for you today, and it's all about weeds with Nancy the Weed Lady. But first, I'll just cover a couple of the usual housekeeping items before I get started. Don't forget, you can check out the show notes over at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And you can find the Still Growing podcast in the top menu and then just scroll down to episodes. Or you can head on over to iTunes. Please give me a review there if you do that. And you can also get the show at iTunes. If you happen to be listening on Stitcher Radio, hit that little thumbs up button down in the corner. I'd greatly appreciate it. All right. So a little bit about what's happening here this week. You can find it in my post on my blog called Back to School Writing and Weeding. It's been a crazy week for us because it is back to school time and it was in particular, back to school time for Will and Emma, who are starting their sixth and eighth grade years at Parnassus Preparatory, a local charter school that they go to. Um, We love the charter school because they're learning Latin and Greek and logic and a lot of the great classical curriculum. And so uh, we're in full swing here and it means a little homework for them every night and a little homework for me as well as I try to help them. But to celebrate their first day back, we stopped at Starbucks on the way to school and the nice coffee folks at our local Starbucks wrote happy first day and some encouraging messages on their Starbucks cups and I thought that was adorable. So I'm happy to report that the first day of school is over and it went well and we're getting ready for a whole nother year of school and learning. So exciting times for the kids. The other major time commitment that I've had this week is spending time fine tuning and writing for my website at sixfootmama.com. Hopefully, if you check it out, you'll notice some changes there with the format. Um, I've been spending a lot of time this year learning WordPress for my website and then GarageBand for my podcast. And the learning curve has been tough to tackle with the limited bursts of time that I can devote to my self-study of these technical endeavors with the kids and the dog and the house and all of that. But I've really drawn on my background in radio and TV to help refresh me um, and refresh my broadcasting skills. And I have to say, it's a little like summoning rusty foreign language skills. It does come back. It just is a little bit slow. Back to the world to gardening. Weeds have been a big topic this week. Weeds have been particularly prevalent this year and the conditions seem to have be perfect, I suppose, with all of the rain. And I know weeds aren't the sexiest of gardening topics, but hey, it goes with the territory. So if you go to my blog um, on this post, you'll see the most resilient weed that I noticed as I was stopped, uh, backed up at a line of cars coming off the freeway. And I glanced over to my right side, and here was this very determined, tenacious weed, actually quite pretty, that had planted itself in the smallest little hole in the sidewalk on the Boulevard. And this thing was blooming. It was just cute as can be. And I took a picture of it. So you'll see it there. Maybe if uh, Nancy takes a look at it, she can help us identify it. Interestingly, these days, weeding is becoming more of a science than ever. There's a ton of books out there on weeds. And further, it seems that all the garden bloggers are talking about them. Margaret Roach, who's one of my favorite garden icons, kicks off her second interview this week, an actual encore interview with Terry Dunn Chase, the author of How to Eradicate 
invasive plants, which is another great resource for gardeners, I think. Margaret is even taking what I call a name it and claim it approach. She's challenging herself to learn the names of her weeds so she can better understand them and ultimately regain some control over weeds. As Margaret says, IDing a weed is critical to learning its biology and how it really grows. Garden blogger Tom Leroy uses the same technique that I favor by laying down several layers of newspaper and then covering that with mulch on his latest post called Easy Weeding. On one hand, it's validating to hear that so many gardeners are using this method. It's simple, organic, and effective. On the other hand, I think every gardener is longing to hear of some magical, non-bending required panacea for the battle over weeds. I say we stick with what works, the newspaper mulch trick. As Tom writes on his blog... Is your garden in the middle of a major weed invasion? If your cat wandered in three days ago and hasn't been seen since, it may be time to take drastic action before things really get out of hand. Don't give up hope of having a fall garden on account of weeds. Notwithstanding the weed battle, I called through my own experiences in the garden this summer to outline some lessons in smart gardening. Whether you're a beginner or an experienced digger, I call them the 10 commandments of smart gardening. And they're outlined on my blog this week. I'm sure you'll recognize yourself in some of these guidelines, but I hope they also provide some inspiration for you too, no matter your experience level. As Don Ingebretson, the renegade gardener, told me earlier this summer, any day you start the day out in your garden is a good day. So get in the garden, pull some of those pesky weeds, get the peony relocated, and relax in your favorite spot, dreaming of next year's potential. Well, that's it for The View from Up Here this week. And now I am so pleased to share with you this interview that I had with Nancy Peters, also known as the Weed Lady, for Still Growing. She is my featured guest this week. And even though our interview took place nearly a month ago, it was as evident then as it is now that there couldn't be a more appropriate subject than weeds for this summer. So without further ado, here's the interview. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be speaking with you. Uh, You know, and we've had some pretty fun conversations getting ready for this interview. We have. Well, why don't you share a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Well, I grew up in New York City and also one of its suburbs, briefly, and spent many years in the concrete jungle. So my experience of gardening was really walking in Central Park, looking at wildflowers in the summer. And I didn't know much about gardening. I knew more about finance, about being a mom. I knew about theater going, skiing, sailing, you know, other kinds of activities Hmm. that I did on the weekend. But when my husband and I bought a house in West Hampton Beach, we didn't know a thing about houses or gardens. We thought our house was fine. Of course, we found out what a fixer-upper it was. We thought all trees were sacrosanct and expected that our fixer-upper would have some kind of garden. Um, The only thing it had was some indestructible hydrangeas, Hmm. a few specimen trees that were pretty hardy, and the rest of them were weedy volunteers and chlorotic rhododendrons. Wow. Our lawn was laughable, and we had a neighbor who was a doll who came by and said, you know, I'll mow your lawn. I do, you know, she doesn't charge very much. She's a school teacher, and he did this in the summer. And then he suggested a lawn service for fertilizing. And I didn't know anything about chemicals, artificial fertilizer, any of that stuff. I knew nothing. 
So we hired Kim Lawn. I can't believe it, True Green Kim Lawn. <laughs> and they did a good job. At least they got rid of some of the stuff. But um, I didn't do that here when I moved. I learned I learned what the dangers were. But our soil was very sandy. I was in Zone 6B, but it was very impoverished. So it was well-drained but poor. And I'm glad we started with soil that was easy to dig because I would have given up. Yeah. But our first landscape installation, I thought we had spent a fortune. We spent like $2,000 and it looked like nothing. <laughs> like a, <laughs> a drop in the bucket. And we yeah. got big specimen trees and, you know, all this stuff. And So I began to ogle landscape catalogs on buses and subways on the way to and from work. And finally, in West Hampton Beach, I took a course on organics at the Nature Lyceum. And it changed my point of view. He used to do a, a thing where he changed the dimes from one hand to the other. And was, I'm going to change your paradigm. So he had oh. two dimes he changed from one hand to the other. I love professors like that. I know. He was wonderful. And then I lectured there after I took his course. <clears throat> I told him I was writing this book. And because uh, I, I was, nobody could explain to me about weed. So I'd already started writing it, even though I knew nothing. But anyway, he was a big mentor, too. He just passed away. Wonderful guy. So I saw in your dedication that you have a brother, James, is it Carden? Carden, right. Yep, who's an attorney, and he helps proofread your work. Does he share your passion for gardening? Yes, he does. He actually bought the family's suburban home in Scarsdale when my parents moved to an apartment. And he grows herbs and edibles because he wrote a cookbook. He does. He, does, he grind, Yeah, he grinds his herbs in like a mortar and pestle, and he cooks things from scratch. And he's they're very inventive, and they do all these clever things. And he also grows flowers and specimen trees. So when I go to visit, I help him prune, I help him identify weeds, or I will make new ideas, get suggestions. You know, put your trellis around your tree that just saw. Or, you know, other things, things where he can grow his roses. I also bring him plants. Wow. And, and my, my two other brothers also enjoy gardening. That was going to be my question. So it kind of all of a sudden started with this generation in your family, huh? Really. And my mother, who's now 94 and an uh, attendant, she's, she's uh, blind and deaf and everything else. And she's still going. She doesn't want one. She doesn't want to miss one minute of life. You know, she's just so full of vim and vigor. Um, she used to weed as she rambled through the yard, and that really inspired us all, I think. She also liked to weed us. She was big on weeding us. Cut your hair, clean your house, you know, all of that, things that mothers do. Yep, she was attending to you. Yes, she was. And uh, my two other brothers um, have, have gardens. The doctor has lived in the burbs for years, and he grew vegetables. Um, not lately because he hasn't been in good health, but the, I have a scholar and computer whiz living in Cambridge, Mass., and he's got a patio garden. He sent me a picture yesterday. It's gorgeous. That's wonderful. And so we all, like, we all like flowers and pretty things. That's great. So tell us where you live and work now and what zone you're in. Well, I retired. I'm, I live in Spotsylvania, Virginia, which is a delightful Zone 7A. Ugh. We were looking for a slightly warmer zone, which I'm sure you can appreciate living in Minnesota. Yeah, I can so appreciate cold. a lot. 
Yes. Uh, we wanted, le- my husband hates snow. I love snow. I was an avid skier. Oh, you were. And I love winter and I adore the fall and the spring and everything else. But um, he hated shoveling it and I didn't shovel it. All my upper body strength is in my eyelashes. Can you help me with this? I love that. Yeah. But he wanted less snow. So I like all four seasons and I refuse to move any further south than Virginia. And we, we, Zeroed in on this area on the internet. We knew nobody here. And after watching enough what you get for the money on HGTV, to realize that New York and the Hamptons was not a happening place to retire. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I wish I'd known how wonderful it is outside fast paced New York City area. It really is great. And you mentioned last night, now you've got this pretty substantial property where you're at. We have 10 acres, eight and a half of it is wooded. But the trees here are, are, are pretty stinky. The Virginia trees—they were—they cut down all the early growth, and so this is second growth trees, and they're very shallow, and they keep falling over in a heavy wind. But uh, this, it's still gorgeous here. I mean, it's just beautiful countryside, and the weeds that grow here are glorious. Really? Yes, they are just magnificent. Well, there are lots of fields, and I'm—I'm I'm in farm country basically which is wonderful. I have cows behind me. I'm like in a gated community, but behind it are cows. It's, it's pretty heavenly. Is it hilly there? Uh, no. No, I lived in Charlottesville and it was too hilly and I just, uh, 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 too Can't many drainage problems. Yeah, yeah. There's a gentle slope down from the house on either side, on any side of it. It's like I'm a little mound. It's perfect. Yeah, that was wonderful. But our first house was in West Hampton Beach, <clears throat> which is one of the Hamptons. It's closest to New York City and where we were working. Yep. And uh, that's sort of a mild beach-moderated 6B. <clears throat> but I couldn't grow a lot of plants that I wanted to grow, like crepe myrtle, and I wanted a warmer climate where the southern magnolias and camellias bloomed. And here I am. Are those your favorites? Um, no. No, but I, I was just frustrated that I couldn't grow them. Mm-hmm. You know, if you ask me on any given day, any plant I look at is my favorite. Roses are my favorite. Clematis are my favorite. <laughs> Great myrtles are my favorite. Cherry blossoms are my favorite. You know, I can go through the whole list. There, I just there's so many wonderful flowers in the world. And uh, Auntie Mame has a wonderful expression. She said, "The world is a banquet, and most poor suckers are starving." Yeah. And I I think the garden really is is a is a place for abundance and beauty and I always bring bouquets wherever I go. I take them to the doctor, and the doctors love them, and and it makes them at least look at me with some seriousness. Well, I hope, or at least with appreciation, right? Yes. And they want to take care of the lady that brings them flowers. Yes, and they're scientists, so I usually I can get a conversation going about weeds, and their eyes don't glaze over. You know, a lot of people when I talk to them about weeds, their eyes just start to glaze. You You clever. They're not gardeners. They're, you, like, not interested. Yeah, you clever woman, you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so in your book, you also thank your mentor, Dr. Andy, is it Senesac? Senesac, yep. yes. Andy is young and still peppy and going. He so, is. Yes, and his kids are in college or just getting married or stuff like that. So he's a youngin'. How'd you so get I to know him? Huh? How did you get to know him? Well, what I was, when I took the master gardening program in 2004, I had you have to apply to it, and I explained that I wanted to write a book on weeds, 
and then I needed to learn a lot about gardening in order to do this. And when I started the course, the woman who ran it um, said, well, you have to meet our PhD in weed science. So I approached him, and he was totally baffled, looked at me like I had seven heads. And I told him I wanted to write a book on weeds. And the first question he asked was, do I have a publisher? And I said, if we build it, they will come. And I'm like, boy, was I naive. (laughs) It took me 10 years to get published. So I had no idea how hard it was to get published when you're unknown, you know, weed aficionado. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not a botanist. I didn't work at a cooperative extension and, you know, all the rest. My degree is in finance. I mean, hello. Yeah. So um, he put me to work weeding in between the uh, pots of weeds. He had a beautiful weed garden in the in the Cornell Cooperative Extension in Riverhead, New York. Hmm. It was in full hot sun, which was killer. But I would read the labels, and I also remade all the labels for him. I took some photos. Wow. I asked I asked questions as I weeded. I watched which weeds wimped out and which ones excelled and how they behaved. And I I started imposing on him with all my drafts, which he chuckled at, but he read and he corrected me and he came up with some ideas and he encouraged me. And he also identified some of the weeds that stumped me. And I'm his big fan, I have to say. That's wonderful. I, I think he thinks I'm a little little kooky because it's like I come out of a world where like you make money. And he got into this job where you make like nothing. Where you make nothing. <laughs> Being a scholar. Yes. And he can't understand why all of a sudden this passion for, you know, a, a scholarly pursuit that has nothing to do with being lucrative. It's just a fun thing to do. Well, and he, like me, I, I have to ask, I'm so curious, why weeds? I mean, what drew you to specialize in something that so many people discard or dislike? I am so glad you asked. Again, people do look at you like you you have seven heads. Mm -hmm. And what I always say is, well, I grow weeds better than I grow anything else. That's my usual answer, which is true of all of us. I think most people grow weeds better than anything. But more than that, when I started gardening, I couldn't find any kind of source to help me out. Um, I mean, I'm I'm a city person. I come from city people or suburban people. No one had like big land or anything. So I pulled weeds out, and I would ask at nurseries, which occasionally helped. They were they they got tired of looking at me, um, and they did they didn't know the names of all of them. Um, I sh- they gave me like a printed thing with pictures I couldn't discern, or I showed them to various landscapers and asked them, you know, was this a weed? And they say, oh, I don't know, I have it, maybe it is. Or when I I go on garden tours, nobody knew. You know, you'd ask the the guy who was showing you. Arboretum and identifying all the trees, and you'd say, Well, what's this little thing growing under? He says, I don't know. So nobody seemed to know for sure. And so I decided to look for books. But a lot of the books use Botano speak, which I consider a foreign language. You know, while I studied languages, I started out as theoretically a Russian major, and I loved languages. And I studied lots of other liberal arts things, and I was great with the balance sheet and income statement. I couldn't get the hang of it. Or I found books that were charming and vague, or had drawings and no photos, or didn't have enough photos. And I couldn't match their pictures with what I was seeing. So I figured with all my years doing corporate research projects, 
I also did internal consulting stuff and my sales experience, which is, you know, communication and all my education. Surely I could put together the book that I had needed when I started to garden for people who were not gardeners, who were not born farmers. I mean, if we don't weed, we can't successfully enable any of our cultivars to shine. So it was a love basically born of necessity. I love that quote, too. That's a great quote. It it was. It really was. And and I'm very happy that I found this, this area because my garden is magnificent. I think if I didn't weed it and if I didn't enjoy weeding so much, it wouldn't be nearly so abundant. But um, the other the other piece of it is is they there are all these when I looked up weeds there were all these spiritual books I'm like oh my god <laughs> no I figured, pun well, intended every, no pun intended <laughs> but you know everyone's life is filled with problems they need to overcome and as the daughter of, a, of an electronics engineer I like to posit the problem and find the solution mm. when I did internal consulting that was what you do define the problem find the solution. So I figured out that compost was the key to rich soil. Remember when you asked me what your friend should do for her six blocks? Yes. And I said, give it compost tea. Well, that's, yes. That's basically my care and feeding of my plants at this point is I have, I plant them in compost and I have an irrigation system, which they also love. And I put compost tea in it of all the things. The irrigation people thought I was a kook. Um, but I needed help to solve the problem of those pesky weeds. I couldn't figure it out. And because I was used to being weeded by my mother, <laughs> and I kind, I kind of liked some of my own personal, more weedy characteristics, I thought it was a pretty good match. You identify with them. I identify with the weeds. Absolutely. They are resilient. Well, and that leads right into my next question, which is, you know, there is a stubborn and resilient quality to weeds, and they're also wild and free. And most other forms, we admire these qualities, yet I'm betting after all your research, you do feel some affection for weeds. Which ones do you have a soft spot for? Well, they are wild and free. And we, as good citizens and well-behaved members of society, as you are and I am, are a lot less so. Um, it's hard, it's very hard not to love their bulletproof indestructibility. They're like Spider-Man and Wonder Woman, but of the green world, mm-hmm. which is, you know, most little kids want to be Superman or Wonder Woman or one of those creatures. And the weeds are like that. Their primary function is fairly benign. They run into problems when we try to fit them into our ideas of aesthetics or what we'd like to eat or make into bouquets. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that's really the issue. They're kind of like a goofy um, good Samaritan who run in who who runs in to fix a situation, and, and in most cases they run in to fix broken soil or a problem spot, but they end up fixing the wrong thing or running amok. Yeah. No, anyway, right? No good deed yeah. goes unpunished, right? No, no good deed goes unpunished, and that's the story of weeds. But right now, I love the goldenrods. Um, I pull them out of my garden beds, that's true, but I replant them at the shadier edges of my woods, and I love their golden fireworks display. Hmm. And I love your favorite, Queen Anne's Lace, which is up everywhere here. It is. But but it never grew in my richly composted and carefully irrigated garden. I can't grow it. Yeah. I tried transplanting it when I first started gardening, but you need the right kind of 
spot that it likes to colonize and take over. Yeah, I it does not colonize. I have a very uh, rich garden, uh, to your point. Oh. And I'm lucky if I get one in my, yeah, front, that's what in my I mean. front bed. But and I do love it. And when I see it, I leave it alone because I love it. Right. I, that's I what I used to blooms. do. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I had I had one that grew in my last garden, but I have none here. But I, you know, I'm eagerly with envy when I try. <laughs> They're just gorgeous. So, out of curiosity, do you do you consider yourself to be a little bit of a rebel or a nonconformist? I think everybody is. You know, I. I'd say I consider myself more of a of a pioneer, a bit of a pioneer. I was a woman's liver. I was annoyed that my boyfriends earned more than my girlfriends, you know, who graduated ahead of me. And this drove me to become one of 13 women in a class of 400 men at Columbia Business School. The fact that they were all men didn't hurt either. Yeah. <laughs> I'd been at an all-girls college, but it was, and it was fun. But I loved, I loved being a mom, and I took time off for that, which is pretty traditional, but it was uncommon in Manhattan. It was almost like pioneering there. Nobody does that in Manhattan. Yeah. Hire daughters of the island and uh, head off. There's a workplace. But I was a very typical New York City urbanite, and I had very achievement-oriented ideals. And I was like, rah, rah, America. And as my father used to say, I considered paying taxes a privilege, so that's hardly rebellious. <laughs> so I was hardly a bomb-throwing radical, though. Yeah. You know, I certainly knew people who were wild and crazy. But um, with gardening, the organic areas, I think the new frontier, it's the oldest way that people ever gardened, but it is sort of the new frontier, and weeds are the unexplored mystery land. That's how I look at it. So well, it satisfies my desire to pioneer. Yes. Have you heard of um, Tama Matsuoko Wong, who wrote Foraged Flavor, and she forages and finds weeds and among other things, and brings them into restaurants in New York City, and then they oh yes oh yes we talked about that yeah I think it's fabulous yeah yeah the 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 restaurants in New York are always so cutting edge which is great and they're always looking for the next imaginative thing and there's the the wild things have delicious flavors. I mean, there are some spectacular things to eat out there. Have you experimented with that? I I love eating chickweed. You do? Uh, you know, common chickweed, Solaria media, which grows like the dickens in my yard. Hmm. But I can't eat it as fast as it grows, unfortunately. It's very moist. The little leaves are shaped like spoons as if to invite eating. Hmm. And they're just yummy. So, And, you know, if you're thirsty, they quench your thirst. If you're hungry... They have something in it um, that it's called inulin. It's not insulin, but it's inulin. And it actually gets your blood sugar up. So you can stay out in the garden longer when you eat it because your blood sugar goes up. You don't get hungry. You don't get thirsty. Well, there's, a little, awesome. tip. there's a little tip no one has heard, I think. Oh, yeah. Well, there are a lot of good, good, there's a lot of good eating. I mean, Virginia pepperweed, they use in studies of glucoraphanin, which is good for lowering your blood pressure and, I mean, glucoraphanins are like uh, a golden password in the in the nutritionist, you know, whatever it is, that community. I never get a chance to mention glucoraphanins in the course of normal conversations, so I appreciate the opportunity to do so. Yes. Do you want to say it one more time? <laughs> glucoraphanins. Oh, my other favorite is, I told you, myrmococcus, which means uh, seeds that are carried by ants. 
Now, are the I mean, glucoracumens? Really. Yeah, are they... <laughs> a lot of most weeds are. are the, apparently, the, some of the weed seeds have something on the end of them called an eliasin, like Kyrie eliasin, like that song. Okay, they have an eliasin on the on the end of their thing that's really delicious to ants. So they take your little tiny weed seeds and carry them over, and they bury them very carefully. Oh, have you ever wondered how? Another way that weeds spread. Is that for most weeds then that the ants are doing that? No, many, many, many. They don't all have yummy seeds. (laughs) They're they're all different. Little known fact. Some of them have the gimmick. You you know, you got to have a gimmick if you want to be a weed. There's a song in Gypsy is you got to have a gimmick if you want to get ahead. And each weed has a gimmick. So, and that's how they get ahead. I'll start to sing and then you'll have to change your thing. I'll I'll (laughs) save that for the outtakes at the end, right? Okay. Well, it's no wonder then that your moniker is the Weed Lady. Can you share the story behind that? Actually, my publisher started calling me that, and it stuck. I squirmed because I was in college in the late 60s, and the word weed made everyone snicker. Oh, goodness, yeah. But they insisted tongue-in-cheek was the way to go. They did. So, yeah, so I let it be. So this has been a, a term you've had for a very long time then. And it didn't just come with this book. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, weed lady. So your book is called 10 Ways to Tell if It's a Weed. And what was your inspiration for writing it? I know it took about 10 years. Yes, it did. Actually, the writing of that particular book took me about three months, but the whole process took 10 years. My first book was a long and detailed book look at the nature of gardening, soil, the names of plants, the in-depth story of 44 weeds, and included photos, drawings, and 200,000 words. Now, what's the name of that book? That was called Weeder's Digest. Oh, my goodness. Weeder's Digest. I still still use it as a reference. I couldn't get it published. And in fact, I had had, uh, shown it to Cornell, and they compared it with my favorite weed book. So I went away with a rejection and a big happy smile. My favorite weed book is uh, Weeds of the Northeast, which Andy Senesak had a role in publishing by Richard Uva. It's an excellent weed book. It has um, description on the left side, and on the right side, it has several photos of the weeds as babies, as grown-ups, you know, and some comparisons. It's really good, and you can flip through it and find your pictures. Well, it was high praise that they compared it against that, right? Well, that's what I thought, even though they said no. Your book's too similar. And they came out with another one that is very similar to Weeds in the Northeast by someone that my brother knew at Harvard. It was amazing about a Weeds of the Urban Northeast, which is an excellent book, too. Hmm. Yeah, so it only sense. took you three months to write. I'm sorry? It only took you three months to write it. It only took me three months to write it. So I had written this long first book which I still use, but in order to get it published, I needed to put together a short, more focused book. That was a suggestion by Cornell, and I couldn't think of a good focus, and I just, you know, went away and licked my wounds. And since every new book on the web was called 10 Ways to, you know, uh, Search Engine Optimize or 10 Ways to Blah, 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 yeah. I decided it to narrow it down to 10 Ways to Do Something. And one of the lectures I had given at the Nature Lyceum was basically focused on how, do you, how can you tell if something's a weed? Because he, I didn't use slides. He didn't want to use slides. He wanted to be totally technologically backwards, which was fine. 
And so you have to talk about, you know, more generalities. So it was very easy to take that outline, and the book basically just wrote itself. Since I'd given, I'd given the lecture over a dozen times. You're kidding. No. No, I, lo- I love teaching at the Nature Life Museum. You know, you'd have about 12 people, and they were all kind of fruity and weird, and they loved, you know, knowing that without, um, water sinks and trees communicate with each other. You know, they really went off onto some of these wild and woolly tangents, but they were all basically dedicated to um, organics, which I became very dedicated to, too. And now I know, you know, what drew me to your book is the beautiful cover of it. I love the yellow. And oh, thank you. I loved your picture. I love the whole thing. But your book is available online only. Right. And but yet you still have to make a cover for it, right? That's right. And they, they design, again, that was something that my publisher came up with. I had a lovely picture of weeds. And they took a photograph of me and made that cover. They did. And I said, I'm embarrassed. They said, no, it's a good cover. It has visual circularity. And I said, oh, i got to write that one down. Visual circularity. Yeah, I like that. I thought that was pretty groovy. And I love yellow. I that love yellow, too. It's my favorite too. yellow sweatshirt in that picture. So, Well, gardeners like yellow. I think that's, a, that's an appealing thing. Now, I noticed there's a dandelion on the front. Queen, yes. Queen Anne's Lace. And I don't know Correct. the other two. Pokeweed. Okay. And Centauria... Macula, is that yeah. the one at the top? Spotted napweed. Is that the one at the top? I think so. The big the purple? Spotted, the one that has the, the pretty purpley pink yeah. flower. Yeah, that's a spotted napweed. It's, it's, it's in the Esther family, like, um, like the dandelions. Oh. So each one of those petals is actually a flower with reproductive parts at the base and pollen for any little critter that wants to go eat the pollen. It's actually drink quite the, pretty. Drink the, drink the nectar. Hmm. Yeah, they are They are beautiful. Wow. Yeah. Now, it is very empowering to look at a plant and be able to identify it and take action to know if it's a weed or if it's a plant you want to keep. In your experience, how has developing that skill helped you grow as a gardener? Absolutely, enormously. I really do appreciate the question because I really was baffled when I started. And it's helped me to grow a lavish, super abundant garden. It also helped me justify all the excesses in my garden bed. I'd say, if you have weeds, you just don't have enough plants to cover the bare bosom of the soil. I love saying that. <laughs> and <laughs> and it's helped. It's helped me to take, I learned it from, I went to this, there was a fish store in the Hamptons and he had the most gorgeous gardens, you know, and I asked if he had enriched it with fishes and stuff like that. He said, I've I've been putting in compost for years and there was not one weed in the garden. It was just so densely packed. It was just happiness itself, you know, poppies, tons of them. He said, whatever makes it to the sun survives, whatever doesn't, too bad. So I, I kind of liked his philosophy, but it's helped me to take control of what I'd like to see in a garden and to express, express my own creative preferences and tastes. <clears throat> I tried being a landscaper, but found I didn't enjoy catering to anyone else after years of being a corporate lackey. Yeah. You know, when you're working and you're getting paid, you, you do what the customer wants. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you want? How would you like it? What are your needs? What kind of thing do you want? And there are people who wanted like spaces in between their plants, which I find anathema. 
So I just couldn't do it. It was just, it was crushing to me to, to have to do a garden that looked neat. So I, I love the creativity and I also, uh, I also learned from, um, from all my studying that my cultivars could misbehave. And I began to cull plants out, which seemed to me horrendous to actually remove a plant. And even now, if my mother sees me pruning, she'll say, what are you doing? <laughs> How can you? And I tell her, no, if you cut the roses, they do better. They like it. She's like, no, you're cutting the flowers. Yeah. Don't do that. You know, when you have to thin out seedlings? No, don't take those away. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I just interviewed Shane Smith from the Cheyenne, Wyoming Botanic Garden, and he oh, said how the, wonderful. Yeah, he said the same thing. He said that um, you know the best time to go out and prune or to thin is when you're angry about something because you're going to do maybe a little bit more aggressively than you would otherwise, and you'll end up with a better result. So I, I thought, can't I thought believe that was great how advice. well they grow. Yeah, I, I try it with some some new new things this year. I I cut back my tall growing flocks. And I said, oh, well, they'll grow denser foliage and more flowers. Really, I wanted to see some of the other plants that they were blocking. Yep. Well, don't you know, they grew back shorter, thicker, bushier with more flowers. Oh, how great. It's like, yeah. And then I was denuding one of my roses that had really grown wild. It's in the Rugosa family. And I had it. It's like, looks like bare sticks. I said, just wait. It has just resumed its normal hugeness. Yeah, and it's covered with roses that, of course, the Japanese beetles are eating now, which is another oh. story. Yeah, that is another story. I that's had except, some. Yeah. That's acceptance. That was my lesson in acceptance. Yeah, listen. <laughs> Man, we get a lot of lessons in acceptance as gardeners, don't we? Oh yes, you do. You learn patience, which yeah. I certainly, as a New Yorker, was not. That was not one of my big things. I don't think Scandinavians are very patient either when it comes to gardening. I don't think so either. <laughs> I don't oh, think so great. either. Well, speaking of pruning, I had a Canadian shrub rose that I was just tired of, and it was not doing what I wanted it to do, and so I chopped it completely to the ground. And it was probably yeah. about four or five feet tall, and I had every intention of, once I had demolished this thing, of going in and digging it out. But, right. of course, four kids and the dog and yada, yada, yada. Well, I'm back in my garden this week, and I'll be darned if that thing is not as big as it was when I pruned it in May and covered in flowers. Happy. They're happy. Yeah. My brother said when I, when I showed him how to prune his roses, he said, I can hear my, ruse, my roses sighing. Ah, oh, that felt so good. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's true. It's probably like getting a mani-pedi. I think so. <laughs> I think the, the the flowers respond to attention, just like any living thing responds to attention. Yeah, that's a good point. So, yeah. Now, your book essentially walks readers through 10 important questions to ask regarding whether a plant is a weed or not. And you start out by asking if known cultivars or crops have disappeared as the plant in question grows. And I thought that this is a great question that gardeners should ask. Can you tell us a little bit more about this one? This was really how I learned about weeds. In my very naive early days, I planted young seedlings. And I had great hopes. You know, I had these dreams of this garden that was going to emerge. And they were completely overwhelmed by established plants. 
which was okay, but even more often by plants I couldn't identify. And my seedlings were hard to identify, too. They didn't look anything like the catalog. You know, the catalog shows them in full bloom. Yes. But those pesky weeds just grew so fast, and they were so satisfying, until I found patches of lawn overrun and plants entangled in killer vines. And then I readjusted my focus on the invaders and figured I'd need some strategy to compensate for my lower level of upper body strength. I've done a lot of things to try to compensate for my lower level of upper body strength. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you, Nancy. I'm with you. Yeah. We have to. Us girls have to use some yeah. extra strategies. I always yeah. say in my next life, I'm coming back as a man, and I'm going to do drywalling, and I'm going to move boulders, and there's a lot of things I want to do. I know, and I can't do them now. No. You just can't. I, you know, like carrying my skis was hard. <laughs> <laughs> I tried snowboarding to catch up with my daughter, and I couldn't push myself off when I fell. You know, when you fall on the ground, you have to push, do push-ups to get oh, yourself gosh. back up. And it's like, oh, there's yeah. this middle-aged lady trying to push herself out. It was pretty pathetic. Hey, I can't carry my groceries anymore, so I guess that's oh, no. why I've got the four oh, kids. No, so, yeah. Now, when you see something disappearing, is that when you take action? Or do you do you already know that, it, that a weed is going to start taking over just by all of your work? No. No, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just as surprised as anybody. You are. I find them enchanting and surprising. Yeah, they are and surprising. And their varieties never cease to delight and amaze me or, is, and frustrate me. Because yeah. just as I think I understand something, I find something else I don't know anything about. So I could spend the next hundred years learning about plants and never get to the end of it. And, you know, they're, they're a little... Um unpredictable too because you know some they can go for years being well behaved you know you're monitoring them they're they're minding their own business and then all of a sudden the next year they just take over well i have a friend now i mean you had the question about notoriously speedy growers yes and my friend um therese has beautiful forsythia that she's had for 30 years that she's owned her house all of a sudden, they took over like a whole section of her yard. And in the last few days, she has dug up first six plants, and then the next day she dug up five. And today she said she dug up 17. And she got that, you know, the buzz you get when you're working in the garden until you're past exhaustion? Yes. <laughs> she was like totally buzzed out on having removed the uh, forsythia. But they're not a weed. They're, you know, they're a cultivar, but they get crazy. But it took them 30 years. They behaved themselves. They were, you know, good citizens for a long time. And then all of a sudden, they said, it's time for you guys to cut loose and do your thing. And they knew that. Or did she cut the mother plant out then? And then that's what triggered it? Or what? It it could have been the mother plant had been growing babies all along. Okay. And they finally got old enough to bloom. Hmm. That you don't see them underground. I mean, my favorite underground sneaky sneaky rapid grower that I just discovered. I'd written about it, but I had never seen it before. It was um, a common blue violet. Okay. And I had actually gotten them from Therese. She had given me some, um, I can't seem to grow uh, lily of the valley. Me neither. On Valaria. Yep. And so she had given me some. She said, oh, I just take these clumps and I throw them out in the woods and then they take. She doesn't even plant them. You know, she throws the whole clump out. Hmm. Well, I put a bunch of them in, and the only thing that grew were these violets, 
which I had written about, the common blue violet viola, Papillonaceae, specifically. And it has what they call Clystagamus flowers, which is another wonderful vocab. This is what I'm saying. It's all botanical speak. Yes. But I thought Clystagamus flowers. What? Anyway, I figured <laughs> I'd never see them. Well, it I sounds was awful, them. doesn't it? It does. <laughs> I was, it sounds dirty. Yeah. So I was digging them up, and they were dirty. You know, they were under the dirt. So I picked them up, and I said, oh, Joe, you have to come see this. I found a real Clystagamus rift. <laughs> I've got flowers on it. Let's get the camera. <laughs> so I started taking pictures, and he took better, He always takes better photographs. But I actually got to see what the flowers look like. Hmm. And you can literally see them in bud. And if you take the camera, they're fascinating. And they spread like the dickens. It takes them a while to establish because they're perennials. It's like the first year they sleep, the second year they creep, and the yeah. third year they leap. Yeah. But sometimes it's the first decade. They sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it is. So one, one, of the, one of my, um, a couple of my least favorite fast growers are hairy bittercress uh, called cardamom hirsuta. Um, and I told everyone when they were asking me about weeds, they said, you probably have cardamom hirsuta, hairy bittercress. And it wrote in on the pots of my nursery ground plants. That's where it started. That's where the infestation. It's not in weed books that are old. It's in new weed books. And it's called hairy bittercress. Bittercress. Okay. And it's in the mustard family. Oh, and as a mustard family member, its seeds explode and help propel it everywhere. I have, I got a photograph in my book where you can actually almost see the movement as the seeds explode. Really? Which to me, it was amazing. I, I found another great picture of weeds screwing themselves into the soil of seeds, but that was on a micronal electric, whatever. Hmm. Special website. But that's, you know, any mustard family has prodigious numbers of seeds, but they yes, also they explode. I mean, yes. I didn't know they exploded. They yeah. pop. Yeah. They can ping right into your eyes huh. if you're not careful. Um, common chickweed also does that. Um, and in cool seasons, it regenerates when it's broken. It stretches like elastic, and it grows even when you take it out of the soil. It continues to grow even when it's pulled out. You're kidding. Nope. Nope. I put it in a pot, and I, I threw it, you know, when I was weeding, I throw things in these. I used to use kitty litter buckets. And I throw them in until they stop making those. And um, and I left it for a few days, and it had got a little rainwater. It was disgusting. All of a sudden, I see this plant flowering. Oh, and I said, what is it? So there you go. And there it is. Well, when I was a little girl, I had a, a little charm bracelet. And I think it was my mom's when she was little. And it had a little charm and inside the charm it was like a little glass bead and it had a mustard seed and i think yes and i think it was for i'm sure it was for something like if you have faith the size of a mustard seed seed. yeah and yes yes and when i was looking at it as a little kid i couldn't believe it because that thing and i still have it it's very very minuscule this little they're minuscule Mm -hmm. and their their tininess is their advantage because they can fly in the wind. Yep. They can be digested. They can go through someone's digestion, come out with compost yep. on the other end and get planted. Tiny size is, is a mighty powerful force. Yes, it is. The same thing with a common chickweed. Um, I compare it in my other book to a mass of, my second book, the mass of peasants in revolt hmm. that overtake 
the ground. <laughs> you get little tiny peasants <laughs> running all over, and they overrun the whole manor house and take over, you know, all the armed guards and everything else. Yeah. They can. They're powerful. Yeah, they are powerful. You yeah. share you share in your book that the English common name dandelion comes from a French term meaning tooth of the lion to reflect its roaring proliferation as much as to reflect its jagged leaf lobes, tap roots, and petals. Let's spend a few minutes on dandelions, which are probably the weed that is most recognized by gardeners and non-gardeners alike. What can you tell us about dandelions? Well, my favorite thing that I just learned well, I'll tell you how I started writing about dandelions. I was speaking to a woman who was French. And she said, oh, dandelions in French, we call them peace-only. I said, peace-only? She said, yeah, it makes you wet the <laughs> So that got me started. I thought that was hilarious. So, of course, I had to try it. <clears throat> and I was, like, totally out of control after that. It was like, it really is a diuretic. It is. Oh, totally. Hmm. Um, so I started reading up on it. And... Um, not only is it highly nutritious, it was one of the, the choice weeds for people to eat as a winter tonic, you know, when people were sick over the winter and they'd see the uh, dandelions green up. You can use the roots as coffee like you can for chicory. You can make beer and wine out of it. You can eat all the parts of it. It's apparently good for arthritis. It's, it's Latin name taraxicum comes from one of the components, taraxacin, which is apparently very good for arthritis. Go figure. Mm-hmm. That's well, also a phrase I don't get to use very much in conversation. No. And if it's and, if it's that strong of a diuretic, you can kind of see where it's probably good to kind of help you detox if you are sick. That's, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's mm-hmm. exactly right. Yep. And the thing that I have just discovered that just astonished me is I was looking at a seed once. I was, I don't know, I was daydreaming and I had a seed in my hand and I couldn't see it. So for Valentine's Day, my husband bought me an electron, no, not electron, a microscopic camera, which I can't figure out how to use. So it sits there as a token of his love. <laughs> and I went online and decided to look up these. Poor Joel. <laughs> and the lazy, the lazy girls went, well, he does the same thing. Oh. So he has, he has toys he wanted that he never ends up playing with. But Is one I of them an iron? Up, huh? Is one of them an iron? <laughs> no, no, I have no irons in this house. Okay. I gave that up when I moved. But the pappus on a, the dandelion seed itself, you know, you see that puffball seed head. If you look at it closely, it looks like a dimpled golf ball. And if you look at the seeds <clears throat> under the microscope, they have ridges all over them to hold them into the little receptacle. And then on top, and also to help them when they land, and they're, it's a hard seed case. But on top of them, they have what's called a pappus, which is the little parachutes. Well, you'd think those little parachutes are eensy-weensy and there's not much to them. Uh-uh. There's a whole structure in there. They're filled with tubes that hold water. And they have little hooks on the end to help them adhere. And they've done studies that show that dandelion seeds with the pappus attached, with their little parachute attached, germinate. 30% better than the other seeds or, you know, some kind of number. I can't remember what the numbers are. Germinates much better and grows faster. And that's because the pappus retains water, mm-hmm. like a woman who eats salt. Yep. <clears throat> so it's just like that. So it comes with its own ready-made irrigation. Right. When it's trying to get started. When it's trying to get started. 
And it's the same of many other plants in the aster family that have puffball seed heads. But that that was the thing that I found absolutely fascinating. But there are a zillion recipes for um, dandelions, and they sell them in supermarkets. And it's it's it was a savior for many people during the um, potato famine. People would go and eat their dandelions, and it was considered really choice edibles. Now, eradicating weeds or invasives is a real challenge for people, obviously. And sometimes I joke that the word eradicating isn't strong enough for some weeds. That's true. Yeah, it's true. And sometimes taking effective steps with invasive plants can be really overwhelming for gardeners, even experienced gardeners. What are some of the hardest weeds to eradicate? And what are your tips for eradicating invasives in general? Okay, one of one of the best sources for that is books on global invasives. There's a Brooklyn Botanic Garden book that that will define whether something is a global invasive. The ones I've come to know are Japanese knotweed, spotted knapweed, and Canada thistle, Canadian thistle. And basically, my tips are treat, repeat, cover the soil, grow a competitor, and treat and repeat. And then cover the soil again, grow a competitor, and treat and repeat. Okay. There is, when you think about it, um, all of these things have roots that will grow. Uh, they, I mean, they have phenomenal, the numbers are preposterous. You know, like the root will grow six inches thick and grow uh, 15 feet under the ground. So you think, you know, you're pulling it out, and you, and if you if you cut it open and you uh, carefully paintbrush on some herbicides so that the maximum amount of herbicide is translocated down to the root. I mean, how is a few drops of herbicide, how are a few drops of herbicide going to kill a plant that is the size of the universe? I mean, the roots are just immense on these things. Plus, all of these plants have the added advantage of what's called allelopath, which I go into a lot in my uh, next book, which is chemicals that they emit that poison the soil for other plants. So you know how people will piss mark their dogs will piss mark their territory? Yes. Plants do too. And some of the worst invasives are serious, you know, thuggish territory markers. They're more like gang members who say you cannot sell drugs in my area. <laughs> We're the only ones who can sell drugs here. So they actually change the the, um, the nature of the soil. They'll encourage the growth of anaerobic bacteria that most plants can't grow with. And they do have a whole arsenal of tricks to, you know, murder everyone else. And you would ask me again about the Canadian thistle. Yes. And I had done in my, in my book, I wrote a thing about it as, uh, as an armory. I did warfare waged by Canada, Canadian thistle. Yes. And at first, it came, it, I, I put this in, in the book, but it was a foreign invader. It stowed away in hay to feed the horses of British General Burgoyne during the War of Independence. And he lost the war, but the American colonists um, survived, and so did this weed. And it's on a whole bunch of wanted, dead, not alive lists. Those are very funny. They have those posters for weeds. Yes. Like the weeds can read. Hello? Yes. <laughs> so it's been mandated for removal for years. It has its uses and all the rest of it, but 
the warfare wage is it has barricades and has sharp prickles on its leaves, which are mechanical things. Underground, it has uh, vertical roots to as much as 23 feet that support up to 18 feet of extensive lateral roots that generate new plant cones every two to six inches. You want to try to fight that one. Their timing strategies, they have staggered growth stages occur at the same time. And they have battalions of seed force, seed dispersal forces. Each seed has the same as the, what the dandelion has, the akeen with the, uh, the hard armor on the seed case and the pappas, which is a fluffy parachute. So it's the airborne division. Mm-hmm. And they have endless reinforcements by hardy perennial seeds and vigorous seedlings. And they have surprise attack because it's an alien invader. It came here without any biocontrol to keep it in check. So the naive, they call them naive natives. And they have no tools to fight it back. It has biological warfare. It, it hosts diseases. And it has chemical warfare. Is it, you know, it has those chemicals that inhibit, inhibit other crops. Um, this one chemical it has, knisson, will re- reduce yields in corn 80%, 95% in soybeans, 60% in wheat. So it's, it's the killer. And it will attack your food supplies. It has high nitrate levels hmm. that can distress or kill grazers. How tall? And it also enlists human assistance. I'm sorry. Uh, go ahead. It enlists humans, human assistance. Assistance because it has pretty, fragrant flowers. And it... That that are uh, that they gain protection from uncertain gardeners, and people with this is spread uh, even as more bird watchers, butterfly gardeners, and beekeepers keep more of these turncoats around. So, I wrote while it overwinters better than Napoleon's army did in Russia. <laughs> it can't make it in the south. <laughs> it can't. No, not in the, not in the really hot south. It can you know further south of me. Well, it does just fine in Minnesota, I can tell you that. I know. Well, it's it's wonderful in the mi- middle of the country. It's a real problem. And, mm-hmm. you know, with the rangers, they tell people to wash off the tires of their vehicles. It's like, yeah, right, I'm going to come out of the out of the woodlands or the, I'm going to come out of the field or the prairie and wash down my tires so I don't spread weeds. Yeah. It would be a great job for kids, but sadly, we probably won't have the water supply. No. Well, that's the <laughs> other thing. Right, exactly. Yeah. Huh. How tall can they get? Because uh, I'm ashamed I don't know. To say I'd have I, to look that up. Yeah, I'm ashamed to say I think I've pulled some that are four or five feet high by the time I find them because they they are um, sneaky. You know, they like to kind of nestle right in with Queen of the Prairie or Joe Pieweed, other tall specimens. And Oh, that's hor- horrifying. I found that with weeds, the estimates that I get out of books are inaccurate. I told Andy Sensack, my, my guru, that I had chickweed that came up to my hip. Hmm. And he said, doesn't grow that high. I said, mine does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I measured it from the bottom of my foot to the top of my head. You're the weed lady. <laughs> I'm the weed. It grows high. It grows high as an elephant's eye. <laughs> I can climb right up. To... And when there's shade, I have some crabgrass that must be six foot tall. I have... This whole seed is a magnificent sea of salvia, black and blue, which is naturalized here. It, I couldn't grow it except as an annual in New York, but here I, it, it has taken. And oh. it forms like a big weedy clump of itself. 
but I have crabgrass that's grown even taller than that. And you see the little crab fingers creeping out from under. It's not supposed to grow that tall. Hmm. I'm like, don't you read the books? Yeah. Don't you know you're not supposed to do that? <laughs> and yet they're doing it. And yet they're doing it. Well, that was super fun, and that concludes my first part of my interview with Nancy Peters, the Weed Lady. I hope you enjoyed it, and I'd also like to invite you to stay tuned for part two, which will be in the very next episode of Still Growing. Again, I want to thank Nancy for being on the show. You can find this podcast on iTunes as well as Stitcher Radio or the BlackBerry Podcast, and you can also subscribe directly to the blog post to get them via email. I'll have all the information from the show today at sixfootmama.com. That's the number 6ftmama.com, and you can find this episode in the top menu under the Still Growing Podcast. You can always find me at sixfootmama.com or on facebook.com backslash stillgrowing with sixfootmama. You can also email me directly at jennifer at sixfootmama.com. Feel free to send in your questions for the Master Gardener Roundtable, which airs every other month on Still Growing. Your question will be answered either via email or during the podcast. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a sixfootmama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is an hour-long weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Okay, so in honor of my interview with Nancy Peters, the Weed Lady, the boys, uh, PJ and John, are going to read a scholastic book that my mom, Grandma, found for them, and it's called Dandelions, Stars in the Grass, and it's by Mia Posada. Okay, PJ? I know that some people call it a weed, but to me, the dandelion is a noble breed. Bright yellow petals adorn each one, spreading out like rays of the sun. And spring dandelions bloom like gold stars in the grass, growing taller and taller as the warm days pass. Under sunny summer skies, the flowers are visited by bees and butterflies. The flower begins to change on one summer day. Their bright yellow petals fold up and fall away. And plates of petals emerge, fluffy toss away. They form a perfect circle, delicate and light. The wind blows them loose, sweeping sweeping them into the sky. Like tiny... Umbrellas, they float up high. Every flying tough, the wind has fled, freed, freed, carries, carries with it a tiny seed. The tufts float on the wind until falling to rest. A nice grassy hillside is what they like best. Into the soil, a seed snuckles down, slender new roots tunnel deep underground. Fragile green leaves begin to grow, sprouting up from the earth to below. Look closely and you'll find rounds of buds, buds of green, but 
bright yellow petals are yet to be seen. The buds slowly open facing the sky. Sun, sunlight and water will help them grow high. As summer moves on, sunny and warm, seeds become flowers. New dandelion, new dandelion form. The end.